You're listening to So You Want to Be a Photographer with Gina Militia, one of Australia's leading portrait celebrity and lifestyle photographers. With over 25 years' experience in the industry, Gina is a pro photographer who regularly travels the world shooting for some of the country's top magazines and advertisers. She is author of four best-selling books on photography, runs workshops and mentors aspiring photographers all around the world. In conversation with journalist, interviewer and budding amateur photographer Valerie Koo, Gina reveals what it takes to build a successful photography business, provides a sneak peek into life behind the lens and talks about her tips and techniques to get the perfect shot. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 298 of So You Want to Be a Photographer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Gina Militia. How are you, Gina? I'm great, Val. How are you going? The world's free. Everyone's running around at the moment, or the most of us are we're allowed out. Well, in quarantine, starting. Well, you know, a lot of uh, the states have opened up as well, so I think people are slowly um, getting back uh, Mm. to to getting out outside, which is uh, weird but um, nice and uh, beautiful day here to be shooting. So we've got a great show. uh, Really excited to introduce you to the work of Joseph Rodriguez today, um, which is I'm very excited about. So you got any other news, Val? Have I got any other news? Mm. Um, I am working on a major art project, which is occupying all of my time. Mm. Um, I've had to collaborate, sort of, with a photographer as a result because I'm actually painting a portrait of... um, uh, a fairly high profile person but ha- what happens when there's coronavirus and that person can't sit for you yes mm. yeah <laughs> so you had to use uh, a photo to, to, yes, to so work there's off been no option except use a photo but I've um, uh, got permission from the photographer he's uh, one of the top photographers in Australia so I was very lucky that he had uh, taken this photo and yeah. um uh, and yeah, all will we be revealed soon, but basically, uh, because the portrait is not finished yet, yes. <laughs> but I'll be showing some work in progress shots as I go along. If I, I think the easiest thing is to, um, follow me on Instagram and I'll probably share that in my stories over at ValerieKoo.com. That's K-H-O-O, but it is going to be unveiled at a major event, um, towards the end of June. Fantastic. So, Can't wait. I've, even though I've already had a sneak peek just now over <laughs> Skype. That's all right. It's going to be great. I'm excited, Val. Yes. Uh, okay, so that's what I've been doing. What else Excellent. is new with you? Well, I've got uh, a pro tip for okay. the listeners. So I've been thinking mm-hmm. a lot about this. So, you know, and, and we were also talking earlier about exercises as well. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you have been regularly doing a particular exercise, we were talking about planks, weren't we, Val? Yes. And how long? And you said eight minutes you could hold the plank for. That was a while ago. This That's impressive. Right yeah, yeah, not yeah. Right and I'm not quite at that level yet. But I, I can remember that there are certain exercises that I was doing that if I stopped – very quickly, those muscles that you're using atrophy. Now, it's mm. the same for your creative muscle. And I know yes. there's a lot of people, and I've been uh, seeing posts in the uh, Say so You Want to Be a Photographer Facebook group and also over at the Gold community 
about people losing their creative mojo and you know maybe uh there's good reason for that there's a lot going on in the world and so maybe creativity has taken a back seat but what i want um to encourage everyone to do is like doing those you know exercises planks or bicep curls or whatever when when you stop doing that the muscle goes away but if you have been someone who has been a long time exerciser that muscle memory comes back very quickly same for creativity if you're not using it if you're not looking for images constantly or working on projects uh, that that creative muscle will start to atrophy. So what I encourage everyone to do uh, is to make an effort to work on a long-term photography project for no other reason than just because. This is yeah. something that you'll have going in the back burner, that this is something that you're going to work on over... I don't know how many years, uh, it doesn't matter. It, like, don't worry about the end result. Just get out there. And, and it's not enough to, like, you know, there are a lot of photographers out there taking pretty pictures of stuff that everyone's doing the same thing. Babies in roads, in forests, they're, they're all the same. What, what is it that you know about that is niche to you? And the first reaction you're going to have is when you think about this is like, who's going to care about that? Well, if you've got an interest that is so niche, that's where you should follow. That's where your curiosity should take you. So I'm talking about, you know, like I would love to do a creative uh, project about redheads. And I could (laughs) niche that down to, I could make it male redheads with blue eyes you know or you could do you could niche it down further as like um Gina secretly males. wants to be Megan Markle <laughs> I do male redheads in the army wearing uniform see you can see how I can continue to niche down about stuff that I find, to be royal. <laughs> find fascinating you could do a personal project you might have an interest in tattoo the art of tattoo now there are so many different uh, artistic styles of tattooing you know there's traditional there's more modern there's those ones that look like scribbles that I don't know I don't can't describe what they are but they're you know every different um, there are styles and fashions I guess of tattoos or you might have a love of Elvis impersonators <laughs> can you see how that gets niche and niche and niche yes. and niche vintage typewriters or you want to have do a series of vintage writers with their vintage typewriters. <laughs> but but niche it down and it's something that you might work on and, and, and there's so many skills involved when you're working on these uh, personal projects because you've got to find the people and you put the word out and then you want to develop a style and, and it doesn't all happen at once. Start messy. Don't be per- don't worry about being perfect, but just that act of doing that and searching out that and working on these personal projects is going to build on that creative muscle and you just don't know where this would lead you because you're introduced to so many different people and they're seeing your love and passion for Mm. photography so really get get on those um personal projects i think it's a, a really good idea so i've got something to add to that is that um there's so much truth in what gina has said because uh lately i have been taking part in the 100 day project so you can check it out by hashtag the 100 as in one zero zero 
day project and uh, well mainly on Instagram I think and so what it is is just creatives from all over the world including photographers or writers or artists and musicians whatever uh, are taking part in the 100 day project and they're meant to do something creative or output something creative in whatever form that takes for you uh, every day uh, for 100 days. Now the thing is sometimes you miss a day so in reality I'm about up to day 33 but the rest of the world's probably up to day 48. Right. So It's still pretty I'm, good, though, It's con- as long as you're consistent, Val. That's right. So what I find is I do it for maybe um, 10 days or so, and then I'm exhausted, so I take mm. four days off, and then I do mm. it for another sprint, and then I take a few days off. So yeah. as we're recording this, I'm having a couple of days off or a few days off. And so what I found is that it's really good. As Gina says, it's like going to the gym, right? Imagine going to the gym every day. So mm. you really, really improve your skills. And you become more creative, you get more ideas, you find that creativity begets creativity. Yeah. And so you things get easier for you as well. So instead of, and because you're forced to, because you've been, you've decided you've been you've decided to be accountable to the world or who anyone anyone who's reading your 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 posts, is that you have to produce something, and so you don't linger for three weeks over one thing. Um, deciding, oh, should I do this or this? You're just producing it. And, you know, it's not for any other reason than just for this challenge and for the exercise, for for flexing those muscles. And so that even though I'm up to day 33 or whatever, what that has done is um, because some people will know that I um, license designs uh, for of my artwork. And so what's that, what that's done is given me a critical mass to, to put in a in a portfolio so that the portfolio yeah. doesn't look like you know just a few things yeah there's quite a few things in it <clears throat> and the other side of it I've been unrelated to all of that is that I've been reading this book called the five second rule where Mel, um Mel <clears throat> Ket- what's her name Mel Robbins where, could call her Mel Kettle <laughs> <laughs> no Mel Robbins where um uh, the the idea behind it is that you, once you have an instinct to do something, you have five seconds to start taking action. You don't have to complete it, obviously, but to take action towards it. And so what happens is instead of thinking, oh, should I email my portfolio to that art director and debating in your head for a month before, dis- before potentially not doing it, you are forced to do it. So um, night before last, I decided I, you know, it was like one o'clock in the morning and I thought, okay, I'm going to email this to art directors. Oh, I don't know any. Oh, I, I, you know, what if it's not good enough? Um, And I thought, okay, well, I've got five seconds to take action. So I found the email addresses um, and a great way to find out email addresses. It's an app called Rocket Reach. It's free. Uh, so I found out um, email addresses of these four art directors. That was two nights ago. And two of them have already replied. One Fantastic. with One with a no because they're too busy making face masks for, for COVID-19. <laughs> and the other who wants to move it forward to a phone call. So there's no solid result just yet because it was but only two days ago still that's amazing but yeah this result this is a result of you know personal projects like what gina was talking about yeah. so i encourage you to take gina's advice on that and mm. to take action all right so uh i just want to give a big shout out to karen pinu who 
gave us a who uh, wrote a post in the uh, podcast community on Facebook. So if you're not there, make sure you join. It's free to join. Just search for "So You Want to Be a Photographer" podcast community and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. So Karen uh, very kindly said that um, she had um, she had. Um, she loves the gold community and that she has um, looked into other communities for photographers by famous photographers that she found encouraging. And then she said, but it was everything Gina Militia offers in the gold community and Gina gives so much more. The value this photographer placed on his information was around $5,000 and he was giving it at a reduced rate. I just want to encourage you, if you're considering the gold community, writes Karen, don't wait. The resources that Gina pours out over and over for her students is invaluable. Add to that the encouragement from other photographers to keep going when you want to quit and it is truly priceless and so affordable. And uh, Karen um, is uh, has been in the gold community for a while, is taking a break and is coming back, you know, due to COVID and stuff. Um, but And we can't wait to welcome you back with open yeah. arms, Karen. And thank you so much for, for posting that. She's now, doing course, amazing work too, Karen, on the uh, front line. I mean, she's been sewing um, masks as well. So good uh, for you. Yeah, yeah. Keep up the great brilliant. work and we can't wait to have you back. And if you want to find out a little bit more about the gold community, have a listen to this. This podcast is brought to you by the gold community. If you're wondering what it's like to be a member of the gold community over at genomilitia.com, I asked Jenny Paul why she joined. My main uh, interest was to uh, have access to you. I just like wait with bated breath to see, you know, what's Gina going to think about this? What's Gina going to think about this? Or I got to show this to Gina. I do love the community aspect. Uh, VJ Brito, I think, is working on headshots and I'm like learning so much from all of his shoots that he does and getting to see like behind the scenes how he set it up. I also love to have access to your tutorial tutorials and I watched those over and over and over like finally I was like okay I think I got this and I went and tried it and there's always new stuff and that's really exciting and just keeps my uh, interest flowing. I have so much confidence. I have been doing paid gigs. Now I understand things way better and like I'm critiquing my own work. <laughs> I would definitely recommend the gold community. How cool is that that we can you know, tap into all of your experiences and all the wisdom you've gained from all your years of doing this. And and you're so humble with just the genuine nature of your help with the gold community. I love it. I love it. <laughs> if you'd like to find out more about the gold community, just go to GinaMilitia.com and click on Join the Community. All right, Gina. So we have a guest today, Joseph Rodriguez. Tell us about. Joseph. Yes, we've got a legend uh, in photography in Joseph Rodriguez. He's a Brooklyn-born photographer and he's been doing working in a social documentary style for over 40 years and he's got so much fantastic content. Uh, mm. He's photographed like the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, uh, journeys of new immigrants to America, gang life in East Los Angeles and life mm. in Spanish Harlem. And he he plays the long game when he does these shoots. He's and uh, he will he will 
spend time getting to know these his subjects. It's not just a matter of a drive-by um, photo shoot. He really gets in there and uh, you, you can see in his images that um, they're just so beautiful. And his story, Val, is absolutely unbelievable so he's been his work has been featured in some of the best magazines in the world including like Mm. gq and new york times and esquire and uh, he's won a ton of awards uh as well and he he discusses like his story is going to blow your mind so we talk about growing up in brooklyn in the 60s get this beating heroin addiction in his 20s like he beat wow. heroin addiction and uh he talks about that he talks about his love of cinema having being mugged when, and stabbed with his and having his first camera stolen uh he mm. did time inside uh mm. why he quit uh, a high paying job in advertising to continue to do work on his personal project talks about his earlier work he he worked as a cab driver and he was shooting then and the stuff that he got is just amazing and then peppered throughout the entire interview he just talks about these photographers who were his mentors the likes of the advice that Mary Ellen Mark gave him to improve his photography I mean you know this guy uh no wonder his work is so amazing and you know whenever you get the opportunity to hear someone who has had uh that much experience it's like you know of course you're going to get some uh amazing um content so um we talk about a whole uh, uh, ton of stuff. He's very generous with his information. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy the interview. Joseph Rodriguez, welcome to the show. How are you? It's a great honor to chat with you. Oh, well, thank you so much for the invitation. Um, uh, yes, so uh, good e- I should say good evening here. I think it's kind of the beginning of the day over there, right? We're in the future by 14 hours, yes. So my day is just starting and your day is just ending. Now, one thing I always ask my guests uh, is where mm. in the world are you? I'm in Brooklyn, New York in a neighborhood called Park Slope, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of nice. It's a lot of trees. It's uh, springtime, a lot of old, older buildings, uh, sort of brownstones as they call them, uh, three-family houses. So tree-lined streets. So it's kind of a – actually, I grew up in this neighborhood, but it's a very different neighborhood today than it was when I was growing up here. Yeah, yeah. so um, Brooklyn in the 60s, what was that like? Paint oh, a picture. It was, a, it was very different. <laughs> it was very different. A little bit more like uh, – well, if I can give you a film to, to reference it to, it would be a little more like West Side Story. Right. right. You, had, you had – it was a very much a working-class um, borough – uh, actually, it's the most populous borough. It's not Manhattan. So this is where most people do live. We're eight and a half million people here. And I think there's something like three to four million people living in Brooklyn alone. So you had all the bus drivers, all the construction workers, all the school teachers, all really a very much a working class sort of uh, community. Yeah. Right. But you also had the issues of race. Right. And so which were very prevalent at that time, even throughout the Northeast where we live here. Um, So, you know, Puerto Ricans lived on one side, Italians lived on one side, you know, there was this gang thing going on as well. Uh, Really not that foreign from the movie. Right. And so, um, but we all kind of got along uh, and we all said good morning. And even one thing about New Yorkers, you know, uh, 
we, you know, we can be very tough, right? But, you know, we may not even like you, but we have this, there's a cordial way to sort of, you know, once you're in a community, once you're on a block, you're going to get to know your neighbors. You're going to say good morning, say good afternoon. Today's people that live here, it's not bad at all. The generation has changed and they're very cool, I could say. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it was a very big difference. So, so, and also we lived on the street. Ben back then, right? I mean, it was just children on the street. Your grandmother was in the window watching out for you, you know, screaming at you, time to come up for dinner, <laughs> yeah. you know, like all those those old movies that we've seen in, in yeah. the cinema. So it was pretty much like that. Uh, politics, well, you know, as politics were, you know, it was a difficult time. People were struggling. But I think there was a lot more work. Jobs were... You know, you could always walk into any particular factory and get yourself a job or, you know, uh, you didn't have to deal with the education sort of pressures that you have today of of becoming, a, you know, very much uh, connected to this fast paced world and culture. Um, you know, it was OK to just fix a car or be a carpenter or, you know, be a plumber or, yeah, which is still OK. But, you know, so it was a very different culture in that way. So yeah. do you think that, that uh, gr- growing up in that environment and kind of living on the streets, getting that sense of, uh, I mean, I call it street smarts, um, do you think it's that those skills that, uh, that you apply to your photography moving forward, it's like learning those skills, learning how to uh, read people? I mean, you, 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 you talk a lot about when you do your work, it's, it's a long game. You invest a lot right. of time into your photography. Um, right. So, so do, do you think that that was something that you learnt on the streets? Because you didn't Absolutely. have an easy childhood by no means, and I, and I no. want to ask you about that. It was tough. Sure. So, yeah, um, of course. No, it was they're, they're definitely in New York City. We, you know, there's, there's a famous book called The Naked City. It's yeah. also a, a film noir movie called The Naked City, and you see it. You see how we all were in the city, right? We're all crime was here, poverty was around, but. Um, but, you know, we were we were, you, you New York has always been that kind of city where everybody's in your face. Right. Mm. So so you you learn real fast as 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 a young boy going to school and going to the, going on the subway and getting to high school, how to navigate yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. How to deal with people, how to talk to people when it's the right time to talk to people. How it's, Sometimes it's not the right time to talk to people. Right. Because, you know, there might be some some criminal element to that conversation right right mm. so so yes i would say street smarts is something that we all learn but something else that taught me uh or gave me my foundation was going up go, going to catholic school and when i went to catholic school as a primary school what <coughs> there were um uh nuns and priests and uh they were very strict huh? mm. so uh you got you got you came into school late. Well, you put your hand out and you got smacks on your hand because you were late. If you did something wrong, you got you got to bend over and sit in the corner. So the discipline that does not exist today, because we're not supposed to touch our children, uh, is really shifted the cultures in huge ways. And I can see that today, even in my students at university, right. where they cannot deal with the smallest little adversity. They just can't, you know, uh, and I think this this way of growing up in New York at that time, uh, you know, you fell down on your face and you pick yourself up and 
you you kept on moving forward you know today you fall down on your face you're going to have like two parents sit down with you on the sidewalk for two for 20 minutes and asking you how you feel you know uh that did that didn't <laughs> happen back then you know especially with latino families you know if you couldn't keep up and and your mother was 20 feet away from you well you just couldn't keep up <laughs> just the way it, that's the way it was so yes it was tough it was tough but it gave us a certain kind of grit yeah right yeah, you can hear that between the in the acting schools. You hear it a lot. You hear it in in the literature schools as well. You know where people grow up a certain way, and it, it affects your, you know, what you're gonna, what you can be, the kind of person you will be when you grow older. Well, yeah. So, so, so that grit and uh, discipline that you learn early in life. Do you think that was uh, an important um, catalyst for, for for the photography that was to come? Because uh, you know, you, a beautiful quote from you, you, you said, I've seen so much of the world's darkness. So I took all those negative experiences and turned it into something positive by using the camera as a mirror to see the beauty and humanity in the world. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you, that's that wasn't me. That's Stevie Wonder. That's right. totally Stevie Wonder, man. I mean, I mean, this is the music we grew up with. You yeah. know? The music we grew up with was very much setting the tone for who we are. I mean, as as I became and what I do and what I care about. And, you know, I'm hoping that that's going to shift now with the world the way it's turning. I just talked to my students about that last week. So, you know, it's their time. And I'm glad we might be talking to a younger audience because, you know, what I would share with them. I mean, we have time to talk about this, but, you know, it's it's um, what you see in front of you right now is really history right now in the making. Right. Every single goddamn thing that's happening right now. All right. And even to the smallest, quietest little moment of you and your partner with whatever that partner might be, whatever that intimate moment might be at home, whatever that intimate moment might be with your family and 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 uh, raising your children or whatever. These are all sort of great, great ideas or great places for us to think about when we do take a photograph. Now, I'm not talking about the typical Instagram photograph of, of me and my child and da-da-da-da. No, no, no. But, I mean, I see ex-students of mine that are using Instagram in a very smart way as they go through this COVID, right? Mm. So, um, anyways, I don't want to get off the track here, but you, you were asking. <laughs> yeah. Like when you were 17, you had like almost like this sliding doors moment where your life could have gone either way. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. you, you talk about uh, being um, involved with, with addiction and uh, yes. you, you managed to, to, to get through that and survive that. And mm-hmm. you, you, you said, you know, when I ended my addiction, I thought to myself, wow, you're a one lucky son of a gun. What are yeah. you going to do with this? So you had that moment, yeah. even at that young mm-hmm. age where you decided... Mm-hmm. I can do something mm-hmm. with my life. So how did that look? Can you can you sort of share a little bit about that that time in oh, your life? Oh, uh, well, when I was 17 I ran away from home, so mm. you know, it's it's uh you know, it it's the LSD era, you know. So there was a lot of freedom on the streets. But we also had the Vietnam War, so we were all very pretty politically active. Yeah. We you know, our our teenage group that's very close that that was some of them, many of them aren't alive anymore. But um so uh the sense of freedom leaving the house. The house was a very hard place to grow up. My mom married a, this man who turned out my stepfather. My my real father, they divorced, and he was in the Air Force. He was 
pretty cool guy, but they didn't work out. So my mom raised me and until until the age of 10, then she met this other man who who became my stepfather and he became a heroin addict. Mm -hmm. And the journey was all downhill after that. So, you know, I had to sort of see what it was like at the age of 11 coming home from school using the bathroom and see my stepfather sitting there with a needle in his arm the blood coming down I didn't know what that stuff was so there was a lot of sort of wake-ups you know a lot of shocks as a young young boy that um you know you just you kind of just get through children are resilient really they are but there was there was something that I didn't realize was happening to me was a lot of trauma Mm -hmm. so which we kind of focus on much later in life and understand and why we do the things we do. So when you're suffering and you're not necessarily feeling, and this goes, this is a classic story for any young person. If you feel that you're not fitting in at school, or if you feel that you're not really capturing the studies at home, I mean, studies of school and the home environment's pretty rocky and you don't feel pretty stable, you're not going to necessarily connect with your studies. And that's what happened to me, right? So the house was chaotic. There was always arguing. It was always about money. He was stealing my money. And so it was it was nasty. So by the age of 17, when drugs came around, mm. it was like, yeah, this is cool. I don't have to feel anymore, right? I don't have to do anymore. But, you know, one drug lead to another. And before I knew it, I was 17 doing heroin. And then the next thing I knew it, I was, you know, robbing people's houses and trying to support the habit then I get arrested I go to Rikers Island the first time and you know you can see the mugshot in the juvenile book you know that I that I put I I made that book pretty much about my journey through other children what it's like to go through that system so (laughs) I think uh, I wasn't ready for change I had a night I had a girlfriend at the time and we were trying to live together and uh, I got on methadone, which I thought was a good thing. Yeah. But but um, at the beginning, it seemed like the right thing. But another issue that I realized at the age of 20, 21, was that here I am on on methadone, and I'm, and I'm going to some factory job, and I'm coming back, and then my girlfriend is going to college, right? And she's doing something with her life. Mm-hmm. And... Because I didn't love myself, I started to be abusive to her, not physically, but verbally. Right. And and that happens a lot with men. If a man doesn't, young man doesn't sort of like his journey, doesn't read, doesn't understand, doesn't go to school, doesn't have this calling to kind of push forward, you're going to feel that you're not part of, of the norm, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, and so that... You know, we broke up, and that was devastating for me. I think um, it was after that breakup that I started to realize I needed to change something in my life. And that was a long journey. So 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, you know, I'm getting better. I'm I'm into photography in an amateur way. I'm developing film at home. I'm taking GED. That's kind of like high school classes to try to get my high school diploma. And... uh, and so it was also a good time because it was a time of what we call affirmative action. Yeah. In America where there was there was support for university and and education for for people that didn't have that opportunity before. Right. So so I took took advantage of all of that. I really did. I wasn't gonna wait around. So slowly 
the most challenging part of that era, that 10 years, was more about getting off methadone, right. which, you know, doctors will just give it to you and then just, you know, <laughs> that's it. You walk around like a, like a, what we call a methadonian, which is, you know, you're, you're nodding out all over the place like some opioid guy. So it, I wasn't getting far. So I, I decided to try to detox. Well, hell. Mm-hmm. But, and so, but uh, that took two years to come down to a level that I could do it myself at home. And I think I got myself down to like 20 milligrams. And then I took those five bottles from from a, uh, a weekend holiday because they would trust you because you were doing okay. So they give you your bottles, you go home. And I stretched that out for six weeks and I stayed home and detoxed myself. Wow. Listening to Stevie Wonder um, and Songs in the Key of Life. I must have worn that album out a thousand fifty times. So, and that was the the beginning. And I was 26 when I got off, off of that Methadone, and my life just went completely in a positive direction after that. That's yeah. amazing. The, the percentage of people that get off heroin is not very high, so that, that that's an incredible achievement, and you, you did it on your own, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. at this point, you, like you've, you, you're still taking photos, but what, what, what sort of photos are you taking in those early years? Um, you mean when back then I was yeah. just shooting my 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 sister, my brother, yeah. my friends, my you know I'm gonna it, I I guess the audience would probably laugh at this, but when my first camera uh, I I bought was was a, a practica, which is an East East German camera, East yeah. German camera, and uh, I had a 50 millimeter lens, which was normal, yeah. and the the other lens that I bought was a 135, so it was a telephoto lens, right? Right, and I would never ever ever photograph a person i remember i would photograph on my block because i I moved from this neighborhood to another neighborhood where spike lee lives it's called fort green and uh i would i would shoot out the window of the guys playing dominoes with my 130 they said you took my picture i said no not me not me so the only kind of pictures i would make would either my brother my sister my family and then i would shoot the brooklyn bridge at night Right. I'd buy 6,000 different color filters and put them on and try different things. I tried shooting color slide and I developed it myself. I made my own E6. Wow, so that's tanks. impressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I did, did that as well. And, uh, you know, um, because they had this mail-away school for photography. You can you used to be able to pull out of the magazine, the f- popular photography magazine. Yeah. And I joined and they give you the weekly assignments. So... I was trying, and this is all amateur, though. Yeah. Everything was amateur. It was nothing serious. I mean, I don't get serious. Then I got mugged for the cameras. So You got mugged? You know, what? So yeah, what no, happened? They, they took, they took, well, I was taking pictures of a high school out here in Fort Greene, and uh, so four, four guys came up to me and uh, said, yeah, that's the guy who messed up my sister. It was just a scam, you know? Right. And they tried to get my camera, and I hit one of them with my camera in their face, and then the camera went down and broke, and then they stabbed me and what? beat me up. And, and so I didn't take any pictures after that. Uh, I, I really did. I became a bike messenger after that. And then, uh, you know, because I'm, I'm like 20, 23, 24 at that time. Yeah. So, you know, and I lost my camera, so you know it was I didn't have any more money to buy another one, and and that was all amateur stuff then. But it was very important. What what photography was for me at that time was it was very important for me to sort of get away from this the darkness, yes, and to see see what the lightness could be like, and uh, and so you know, plus I'm a big cinema buff. I I used to love old old cinema, 
where I mean the old black and white films yeah. because um, I just like the way they were lit, the way they were photographed, the way people dressed. I learned a lot about. I, I learned how to be a man through the cinema. Oh. <laughs> I wasn't getting it from my family. Yeah. So you know, I learned how to kiss a girl through the cinema. I learned how to, to you know, how to be suave and sophisticated through the cinema. And you know, we're little boys, you know. I mean, we're little little guys. So you know, it's it's uh, quite an amazing amazing place to go to a dark place and watch a big screen and dream. Yeah. Had a lot of dreams as a kid. You so know. you were a dreamer as a kid. That was, I guess, your escape because the reality wasn't that beautiful, but then you could go into your, you know, Absolutely. subconscious Absolutely. and, and uh, create a whole new world, I guess, which is yeah. kind of what photography is in a sense for a lot of us. So it's an escape. Absolutely. So how do you go from being mugged and not having a camera to then starting photography again? Well, it was more um, in the 80s because um, you know I there's a there's a big part of the the life that you know I changed my life in 26 I go back to university I study graphic arts technology I come out 1979 1980 now I got this full-blown job with a suit and tie and I'm a production manager a produ assistant production manager at a printing house dealing with Winston-Salem so I'm doing all the cigarette ads we're doing the Calvin Klein's ads in the New York Times magazine we used to do all the repro Right. All, all, all the work. So yeah. we used to do the press proof. We used to do all that stuff. So ink, color, you know, imaging, typography, all of that I studied in university. Right. So, which is still photographic. Yeah. So it was a, still another connection. But then I was making a lot of money and I was falling into this disco trap. The the disco di I called trap. it the disco trap because it was the Studio 54 era, right? Yeah. And it was the era of cocaine and staying out late and partying. And it was like, uh oh, this is not for me. So I quit my job. My mom was pissed. I was making a lot of money, but yeah. you know, I didn't really play golf and I didn't play tennis. And that's what you got to do to hold this kind of job, right? right? You got to you got to play because I was dealing with Madison Avenue, all the big advertising agencies yeah. for their for their printing. So I quit. I, I go back to driving a cab part time until I can figure things out. And then a friend of mine had an art moving business. He had a step van, a truck, yeah. and we started working with uh, uh, galleries that, that uh, represented John Basquette to David Warnarich. And so we started going in out of these galleries in Soho in East Village, which were allowed to be galleries then. Now yeah. you can't be a gallery there anymore. But, um, and I started to meet these artists, and it really changed my mind. It really did, opened my mind, I should say. Did, and you, that's feel when like I started... the, did you feel like that yeah. you, you'd met your people then? Like that, that you, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say I met my people. I was inspired by them yeah. as artists to what they that they were doing, and uh, you know some of the works I really admired. And then I started digging into photography more, and that's when I found uh, the International Center of Photography. I took a weekend workshop, right? Right. Which which uh, you know was very amateurish and just go out and shoot color on the street. So right. you know street photography. Yeah. And it really kind of hooked me. And, you know, I started learning more and seeing more and understanding uh, photojournalists and Eugene Smith and Anders Cortez and the Kappas and everybody else and Lartigue and Duanou and the French school, the Spanish school of photography, the English, the British school of photography, the Russian school of photography. I mean, I was all about photography. Yeah. And so, you know, and that's 1984 into 85. And that's when I started sort of volunteering there. And then they, they gave me a scholarship. 
And I took that very seriously, and that's when I produced they gave you a Spanish so, so you started volunteering. What were you doing as a volunteer at the school? Just cleaning up the darkrooms. Right. You know, uh, you know, yeah, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. um, and uh, and just being in, just being in that house. Just being I mean, around those you know, people. I mean, that must have been well, um, yeah, so not just that, but also the photography as well. You know, you've got. You know, one day, you know, Susan Mizellis is walking down the hallway. Next day, you got, you know, you got uh, Leonard Freed. Next Amazing. day, you've got, you know, huge, big exhibitions on the wall. Eugene Smith. You've yeah. got Mary Ellen Mark. You got, I mean, it was just incredible. I, I didn't sleep. I didn't sleep. I didn't, for a whole year, I didn't sleep. It must have I mean, been it was so just exciting. <laughs> yeah, it really was. The school changed. It's not like it was. There aren't that many masters teaching these days. So, yes. you know, but anyways, so that was, that was kind of like the, Sort of introduction, yeah. And you know, I'm in a class right with nine other students that are from all over the world. Like my best friend that went to school with me a year after, is is it lives in Switzerland. We've been friends for 35 years now. That's yeah? amazing. But in my class, you know, I had a woman from Argentina, a woman from Iran, guy from Canada, you know, another person from the U.S., uh, someone else was from, I think, uh, Indonesia. So. You know, it was a very international class. Yeah. In a way that, you know, here we are. They've never been to New York before. And now we all have to photograph, you know, on the streets of New York. And that was just like really great to see. However, I wasn't, I didn't have any money. So, you know, I, I could only afford really maybe two rolls of film a week if I was lucky, you know. So um, I had to watch all these students do great works because they had great support from their home countries and yeah. from their parents and from, and you know, so I had to hold on to what I dreamed or what I was dreaming about until after I left school. So when I left school in 1986 is when I started to really work super hard on Spanish Harlem and uh, and other things. So uh, sometimes you have to hold on to your dream for a very long time. So that Spanish Harlem project, that's the one that broke you as a, as a photographer where you started to get noticed. But I, I just want to talk, just before that, when you were driving the cab, mm -hmm. you were taking photos during that time, and they're incredible, those photos, like out the cab window. Mm -hmm. Is that, mm -hmm. were you shooting mm -hmm. out the window still because you weren't, uh, you didn't have the confidence to approach people yet? That's exactly right. Mm. And so were you Until, shooting with a, so still that, that long lens? Did you still have that one thing? No, no, no. I had a, I had a, I had a 28. I had yeah. a 28 and a 50. I think those were the lenses I had. And I used to take them with me. But uh, it wasn't until I took a class with Mary Ellen Mark. Uh, and oh, that's so cool she, that you can say she that. Looked at, <laughs> she, looked at, she looked at the pictures and... You know, I was embarrassed in, in, in the crit, right, in front yeah. of the class because she said she said something to me that I never heard before. She says, you don't believe you're a photographer. Wow. And and I, because I could not turn around. Now, you got to imagine, you're driving in a cab, right? Yeah. And you're getting all these cool-looking, crazy people in the back yeah. seat, right? Yeah. And, and I could not have the courage to turn around and shoot them. It's only until I took her workshop. Yeah. And she told me, she said, when you get up in the morning, what I would like you to do is to stand in front of the mirror before you brush your teeth, before you do anything in your underwear and tell yourself you're a photographer. What a gift. And do that for about 10 or 15 minutes. What and a I'm gift. And I'm not fooling around. That's so in a way, that a was gift. like a therapy thing, right? Yeah. Like a, yeah. And you know what? I, I did, some, did some of that. 
And after that, I just realized that my photography was not going to get better until I kept pushing. Right. right. So, so Taxi became before Spanish Harlem, for yeah. sure. And even in Harlem, Spanish Harlem was hard because I used to work the streets day after day after day after day and week after week after week. And all I ever wanted to do was to get inside to be to be close to to be in the kitchen yeah. to be in the bedroom and the street is easy to do i mean it's street photography is is not what it was yeah it's just everybody thinks because they have a phone and they can go out and, and let them do that let them have fun there's yeah. nothing wrong with that but street photographers you know i can name the best ones on my on my on my hands basically mm. you know and there's a lot of people that say they're great they're this but you know joseph kudelka once told me told us i should say a photographer gets better as he gets older yeah mm -hmm. I believe that. because you you got to see life you got to experience it you got to be rejected you got to go through all of that stuff so mary ellen mark was the, the one one of the teachers that really kicked me in the pants yeah and made me realize that i was not being true to myself i didn't believe in myself and and it was a fantastic project because, you know, I'm a 100% I'm a New Yorker. I know my city very well. I went five different boroughs. I went everywhere. I, I didn't care yeah. who you were. I mean, I, I I used to pick up the the sex workers at night because they, they used to be the ladies of the night. And then go to the other side of town and get pick up the transvestites who are working on the streets as well and work the gay clubs. So anywhere you wanted to go. And, you know, it's it's true. You want to be an actor, be a cab driver. You want to be a photographer, be a cab driver. Yeah. Because the stories that you you hear, you know, it's basically nothing but a psychologist office, except it has four wheels. Yeah. Right? Everybody has a story they want to tell you. So <laughs> it was it was it was something. Do you so, remember that yeah. first the the first moment that you actually uh, found the courage to turn around and take a photo of someone in your cab? What, how did that feel that first time? It felt real good. It felt a sense of accomplishment because, mm. you know, it's, it's like a breakthrough, right? So um, it, it's like um, it, it's it's like um, um, Goethe, the, the very famous German philosopher who, uh, you know, I have this quote that Gio Perez gave me once. Um, he took it out of his wallet. I'm going to see if I can pull it up here. But um, uh, I, I think, yes, it was a sense of accomplishment in a way that, you know, like here, I, I can just quickly read this. It's a very short little paragraph. And this is Goethe, G-O-E-T-H-E. -E. He's very famous, right? He said, and this this was something that Gio Perez pulled out of his wallet. And this is a guy who had already been to Rwanda, you know, Bosnia, you know, every place else, Northern Ireland. He goes, this is the quote, until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back always in effectiveness concerning all acts of initiative and creation. There is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. all sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no man 
could have dreamed would have come his way. Whatever you can do or dream you can do, begin it. Boldness has genius, power and magic in it. Begin it now. Goethe. I love that. So that was that was given to me and, you know, I'll email it to you. That was given to me um, from Gilles. And that's in my wallet. And it's on my wall. And I pass this on to my students every single year. So it's really beautiful how you said to me, how did you feel? I felt like a door opened up once I took that picture. Yeah. That's that's what I felt like. And then what I was going to do once I walked through that door was really what you see now. Yeah. So that that mm-hmm. was the start, and and, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of photographers struggle with that first moment, and they maybe they talk themselves out of it. But it's just, or you believe that all these things are going to happen if you, uh, you know, ask that right. question, "Can I take that photo?" And none of it Absolutely. ever does. The worst thing someone can say is no, and then you didn't die. It didn't hurt you. You asked well, the next person. Well, I think I think in this day and age, people can't deal with the word rejection. Mm. <laughs> but I, but I, I can, I can honor the British school of, of theater, for example, which is, which the way they train theater, the way they train actors. Yeah. And it, here comes your, um, I'm going to send you the quote. I just emailed it to you. Thank you. So what, what, what they do is they go way back, right. To Shakespeare and you're going to study, you know, British literature way back, way, way back. Right. But, but it's all about failure, right? Yeah. You have to fail. You have to fail. And, and, and rejection is something that, you know, even my students, they can't deal with it. Yeah. You know, they can't. And for every, for every for every 100 or 200 people say no, there's always going to be one person say yes. Yes. So it depends on your perseverance, your strength, and how much you really hunger for what you want. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty much there. Because as Goethe says, it's there. You just have to go out and fight for it. Yeah. Because nothing comes easy. Yeah, you can get lucky and be on Instagram and all of a sudden get 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 followers. But what, what else? What else do you have? Yeah. So, um, you know, for me, it's uh, – I remember when we were in school at ICP, International Center of Photography, you know, we had a great teacher by the name of Robert Blake. You should interview him. He's really amazing. Uh, he was the guy who really kind of set me straight, int- int- introduced me to, to jazz, introduced me to – I mean, this is the kind of stuff we did in yeah. our class. But all the Zen books that come from the East, from where you guys live, yeah. Zen in the Art of Archery, Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, we had to read all of those. Right. Because, because what Robert would say is, you know, we'd all – you know how students always go like, I want to make a book. I want to make a book. I want to do a project. I want to do a project. Well, first of all, you're thinking about the destination. You're not thinking about the journey. Right. And so that's pretty much the Zen practice, right? I mean, I'm not here to be a philosopher or anything. I'm just sharing some of the sort of little tidbits that were given to me, yeah. you know, uh, in my early journey, you know, and how those can be really important for us. Yeah. So, but rejection, I think, is something, you know, it's there. That's why a lot of photographers tend to go to the street photography because you don't have to engage too much. Yeah. Right. You don't have to talk. Now, Vivian Mayer talked. Right. Helen Levitt talked. Right. Yeah. I mean, these are great street. These are women street photographers. And they were like, whoo, forget it. Yeah. Premier. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, uh, but I, I think it is important to kind of we're in a different time right now, whether it's COVID, climate change, politics, money, economy, globalization, whatever it might be. 
But I think it's it's now time for us to get back to humanity, right? Forget about the me. It's all about the we now. And yeah. if COVID hasn't taught us that or is not teaching us that, then we're really in trouble because yeah. that's kind of like where it is right now. Mm-hmm. So, so back in – so the, the, the cab kind of became like a, a, a school for you as well because it's teaching you uh, about rejection because you took, you took that – you had that courage to turn around and take that photo. And then from yes. there – um, yes. Obviously, you continue to do that, and and you had these amazing teachers, and then you move into that first um, project that you did that, that that kind of broke you as a photographer. What mm-hmm. I'm fascinated about is how you talk about uh, with your documentary photography is getting getting close to the people and playing the long game. So it's not about just thinking, oh, there, here's a good um, here's a good story mm-hmm. here. I'll hang around for a few minutes and. Right. If I get lucky, I get a shot. But you go a lot deeper and, and invest a lot more time. Do you, want to, do you want to talk about that? Well, I remember Sebastian Salgado was in the class, right? And I had my – he came in as a visitor, right, to a class with Fred Richin, and uh, who was running the documentary sort of thesis program at the time. And he had a lot of friends. So Salgado was one of his friends. He brought him in, and he did a – he did – it was like a little a review, right, a little portfolio review. So he right. looked at my taxi pictures, and he didn't connect at all. Right. Right. I mean, they weren't really good. Right. I wasn't ready. I really wasn't. Really. Yeah. Yeah. And and then he goes on to show his work and he shows us the other Americas, which the book, that's my favorite book of his works. Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. The other Americas. All right. And I'm sitting in the back of class. A very good friend of mine, Brian Young, who is a a black. He turned out to be the black and white printer who prints for everybody who's famous. Right. He's been doing this for years. Canadian brother. and, he, and we're, let, we're making we're making jokes. We're going like, ah oh, man, I could do that. And, he, and Brian's going, like, yeah, I could do that shit too, man. That's not this easy stuff. And then I raised my hand and I asked Salgado and I said, how long did this project take you to do? And he said, seven years. Wow. And I and I basically just wanted to melt into my seat, mm. right? And that was the beginning to in the understanding that great work takes lots of time yeah i'm not talking about good work i wasn't there to do good work i always want to do great work and you know i'm not saying that all my work is great but that's the that's the 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 the, the step i wanted to get to yeah and every photographer that i studied with was pretty much like that eugene richards you know he's you know, works on stuff for years, right? Yeah. You know, all these guys, Yo Perez, Susan Mizellis, they go back, they go back, they go back, they go back, they go back. And that's when I kind of picked up, you know, right around then that this was going to take your boy a long time. Now, I, ha- I have this cute little analogy that I use, example, I use in class because I used it for myself. There are two types of photographers in a sort of, um, documentary photojournalism world. There's the rabbit, the hare, and there's the turtle. Right. Now, the hare we all know are very fast. They're great war photographers. They're out there doing their thing. They're great spot news. And then there's the slow, the slow little turtle. I'm the turtle. I love the turtle <laughs> because I can take my time. I can look. I can sit at a kitchen table, maybe not get a picture for days, in weeks, but play with the kids, you know, go shopping with the family, go to the doctor if we have to, go to a movie if we if we want to, smoke some weed if we want to, yeah. you know, whatever. But but you know, it's it's really that 
because I feel and I've learned that that intimate moments is all about timing. Yeah. And and you, one needs to put the time in. You know, I mean, you can see it on Instagram. I mean, you can see all these Spanish Harlem images, not all, but the ones that are inside that are really kind of like, how did he get there? How do you do this? I, I'm, I'm there every night. Right. So, you know, uh, with certain families. Mm -hmm. And with these, when you're doing these images, like one of my favorite quotes from you is that photographs not taken are just as important as those that are. Sometimes you have yeah. to let things go and just be oh, there in the I've, moment. I love that I've, quote. Absolutely. That was a tough. I mean, I, I still know. You know, I know that family still. We're yeah. still close. The Rodriguez family and Yvonne, for sure. And they, they remember that night. And we talked about that most uh, just uh, six months ago or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I just, you know, I went through this, you know, feeling of capturing all the time. Right. Yeah. The moment, the moment, the moment until I saw the moment until that. Yvonne and Peter were like my mother and stepfather, you know, there she was crying and I was like, oh shit, this is not the moment to take this picture. So, you know, I put the camera down, I took Peter out and grabbed some beer and, you know, and it, and it, and it is important. I, I think in my world, you know, it's, it's important to let pictures go, you know, yeah. and not necessarily always be think that you need to capture everything all the time, you know, um, and it teaches you about something. It teaches you about life. It also teaches you how to look, even better for the next time, right? Something comes up, yeah. So tell me about this long game and how that might look for a project. So, you know, you, you find a family that you want to photograph and eventually you're invited to sit around the kitchen table. How long is that taking and how many times are you going back and at what point do you feel comfortable enough or they're comfortable enough, I guess you're both comfortable enough to start shooting? Uh, well, I mean, I think the gang project is probably the longest project I've ever done, and mm. it's still it's still open right now. So, um, uh, how do we get to that? Well, I mean, first I'm at, I'm working as a photojournalist, so you know I'm flying all the way from Sweden after the Rodney King riots in 1992, mm. right? So right after all of that happens, you know I. I decided to come out to Los Angeles in May, and then there was a peace treaty with uh, the Bloods and the Crips, which are African American gangs in Los Angeles. Right. Yeah. And so I, I worked that story quickly because you know I'm flying halfway around the world to go to a place. I stayed there five weeks. I, I didn't sleep. I worked every single day. Uh, my strategy was to because I wasn't getting much news from Europe about Los Angeles. So I bought the newspapers, all the newspapers. I got in the hotel. I looked at the news every day and night. And where are the stories? Where are the stories? Where are the stories? So there was a lot going on at that time. Mm. There was a lot of gang violence. There was a lot of funerals. There was a lot of stuff going on in schools. And so uh, through my workings with National Geographic and my workings with Spanish Harlem, I, under I, I, I learned how to look at a more in-depth project, uh, look at a project more in-depthly, right? And almost as if I was making a film, right? Yeah. A, like in a cinema. And so, you know, I, I realized that there were a couple elements that I needed to to look at. One was police. 
So because I had a press card and I had press credentials, you know, my agency, Blackstar, helped me get access to the Los Angeles Police Gang Unit, which I drove around with. But I also needed to go to school. So I went to an alternative school. I met some teachers. I introduced myself. I, when I was going cold, I just introduced myself. That's right. it. This, yeah. is, this is what I do. Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, you know, I'm not hiding anything. Mm-hmm. It was pretty sticky for a while. I got uh, had a contract on my head in one gang, and then You're I had kidding. to leave that gang. And yeah, yeah. So then hang I had on. To leave that because why? Why? That. Uh, well, you... the police, uh, the police had told this gang that I was uh, working with them. Right. And at that point, when I went back, the mother told me, you better get out of here because the kids are looking to take you out. I was like, yeah, but look at my National Geographic. Look at my book. Look what I've done. It didn't matter because they thought I was a cop. Right. So while I was doing this project for at least the first two years, every day I heard I was a cop. But I knew deep down in my heart that this project was one of America's most important stories to tell, just like the COVID is now, yeah. right? Like it is now. This one about youth youth gun violence was really unbelievable because Los Angeles is the capital of gang culture in America. It's where it kind of starts, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to say to you, we understand a gang started in Ireland way back, way back, yeah. right? So the UK is kind of like the big gang exporters of the fucking world. However, L.A., they created their own little monster, right? So, yeah, you could say it's drugs, you could say this, it's a, but it's also community. It's also family. So the way I, st- I started to look at this project was to families. Every single family that I would meet had someone or knew someone that was in a gang or whatever, junior high school, this school, that school. So it was big. And there were over a thousand gangs at that time. Yeah. And, you know, with almost fifteen hundred gang subsidiaries around. It was, I mean, it was huge. So so it was a monster. It was big. So the first time I went out in ninety two, I go for five weeks and then I then I then I moved to I left it I left Sweden. I left my family. I moved to I moved to LA. I got a grant. Uh, and now Sogato helped me get that grant. He got yeah. me a uh, uh, Mother Jones documentary fund. And so, you know, I applied for some money. I got an NEA, probably the last National Endowment for the Arts grants ever. But I got one. And then, so I was able to really work for a year without doing anything else. And every day I went. Every day I'd go back. Every day I go back. Every day I go back. I go check another neighborhood. I go here. I go there because LA is very big. So. Um, and are, are, and you sh- are you shooting and talking and connecting? What What are you doing when yeah, you're going there's, back? There's so four, what does a day look like? Well, there's four four journals. I mean, mm. I I got four. I got like a book written mm. of of issues I had to write. There was nobody else to talk to. Yep. Right. I was completely on my own. Mm. So um, I think. You know, I'd shoot and ship my film to New York and then it'd come back with contact sheets and I'd see what it is. And then, you know, and I kept on shooting. I think to this day, I think there are 350 TIFFs, final, final pictures. Yeah. That's that's what they are up to today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rolls, they're up to maybe 500 rolls of film. Right. shot so so that's but that's 20 that's since 1992 to the yeah to 2016 right so now 
so in the 90s, we did this from 92 to 94. We lived in L.A. We worked really hard. I come back to New York, come back to home. 1995, we have a big show at the International Center of Photography with Dorothea Lang. Wow. You know, it was amazing. Yeah, yeah. No, it was amazing. And the book is not done yet, but uh, we did the book in 1998. And then so things took off that way. And then I just kept on working, doing other projects. And then in 2012, which would have been 20 years, I decided to go back to Los Angeles. And I've been going back and forth and some people knew me and it was okay. But I decided to go back with the camera this time. And I go back to this one neighborhood in Evergreen, and uh, that's the name of the gang, Evergreen, who I'm posting now uh, on Instagram. And they, uh, I was really all paranoid. I didn't know how they were going to receive me. And they received me like family. They wow. said, oh, my God, you're back, blah, blah, blah. So, and everybody changed. Now, all these guys that went around with guns and, you know, shooting at this person, that person, and, you know, losing their, because, you know, there's like, I think there's like, about 14 to 15 kids that are dead that are in my book that are not alive anymore. Oh. So, so it, it was, I mean, we're, we love guns out here. So what can I tell you? Yeah. Uh, and, and so seeing these men now with their children was very important for me to photograph yeah. because what was the last word that I mentioned in the quote that I, that I talked about at the beginning of, the, of this interview, uh, raised in violence is to re-envision and from where I come from, Gina, us Latinos here are always been in the news as the bad guys. Right. We're the drug addicts. We're the thieves. We're the robbers. We got AIDS. We got this. We beat our wives. We throw babies off the roof. We do this. For me, it's always been about, and I'm not an activist, but I'll show the dark side, but I need to show that light. Yes. And so that's where the photography has sort of changed. It's changed in a way that I have a sense of lightness in my heart. I change even cameras. I shoot with a Roloflex now right. a lot. Right. I want to do a portrait more than I want to just hang out, although I do still shoot with my Leicas for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's important. But And then I went back and I did some video with them. I interviewed some of the guys, and, and they're going through the book about when they were and how things changed for them. and. And that was just like beautiful. I mean, even on Instagram, I'm gonna put it up probably in the next couple of days. I went back to this family, and we got the book, and then, and then you have the computer, and they're looking back at their lives when they were drug addicts, and yeah. criminals, and they changed their lives, and they're crying, right, with their grandchildren. I mean, that's a that's that's beyond photography for me. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, that's humanity for me. That's that's all. That that's it. I'm not. It's not ego. It's not about hey, Joe Rodriguez did this. It's really about something that I wanted to reference early on in the interview, which is when young people say, you know, I want to do something and I want to photograph something. Well, try to think about what you know. Right. And also from where we come from, we want to own our own story, Gina. Yes. We're tired of the colonialists coming in and taking pictures of us and showing those really dark images of that's easy to do. Right. Dark images are very easy to get. Yeah. I wouldn't shy away from them. But I think you have to give it another side because life is like a, like a seesaw. It goes up and down, right? So. Yep. Mm -hmm. So, Joseph, when you look at an image, when you're looking at other photographers' work, what is it about a photo that stops you in your tracks? What, what do you think is that standout thing that, that you say, well, that's a great photo? 
Is there one mm. thing or is it a, a whole lot no, of things it's, it's, or you can't no, define it's, it? No. No, it's not. It's not one thing. It can't be. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it's a portrait, then it's going to be about the gaze, right? Mm-hmm. That photographic gaze. What do those eyes look like? What does this look like? Not mm-hmm. not just about fashion. I'm not talking about fashion. No. I'm talking about pure humanity. That's it in its mm-hmm. rawest state, right? If it's about the street, then it's going to be about the composition and also, you know, how does what does that look like? What does the light look like? You know. Um, a lot. A lot of photographers shoot for color for color's sake, and I think that that's not something that um that i feel is uh that's that to me that's kind of a red flag right uh it's a little red wall let me shoot the red wall wait till some people come by wait Mm -hmm. wait something else happens so so i i think it's just not just art and form it's it's about humanity for me Mm -hmm. i mean that's what i that's what i focus on and so where's the human element what what about this frame that brings that across you know, you could see it a lot in Vivian Mayer's work. You can see a lot in these other photographers' works who, who connect on the street. But there's something more than just the street, if you know what I mean. Yes. Yeah. But but um, and and so I, I I think that only time can can do that. I remember I remember I was in Mexico City um, and I saw Alex Webb, who he loves Mexico, as you know, uh, and. Uh, and we had a cafecito and having a coffee. And I said, yeah. Alex, what are you doing? I said, well, he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm working on this Sex in Mexico City project. And and what are you doing? He said, well, I'm going around in this. And he would go to the same block. You ready for this? Yeah. For seven days. The same block. All right. Right. Same block. Seven days. Yeah. Okay. So for all those great street, wannabe street photographers here, so – Here's a man who's a master, right? Yes. Yeah. It's Same. about having a good pair of shoes. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> that's the long game. Say. That's it. It's investing that's... the time to get the shot. You go back, you go back, you go back until you, right, exactly. you find the shot, I guess. Right, right, right. Yeah. No, no, that's, that's true. But in terms of, like, photography, I mean, I, I, I do crits, you know, every week, right? Now we had to Zoom, so, you know, students yeah. send their work in. Yeah. And... We'll look at each frame as each frame. Yes. Right. And if there's a duplicate of the frame, then I'm going to pick the better of the of the three. Right. right. And then one of the things that we do in our class, we don't do it now because of COVID, but is that we will force them to print. Because if you're shooting digitally these days, it's very easy to throw everything up on Lightroom. But you can't really edit very well on Lightroom. Right. Yeah, you can pick and choose your picture. You can see what it is, but if you want to sequence something, if you want to sort of make a, a more a more visual narrative, you know, yeah, you can move pictures around on bridge and stuff like that. But it's very important for my classes always to print, and we always make students make little five by seven inch prints yes. of their selects, and then we put them up on the wall, yep. and then we we go through them because everybody sits down too much these days, and in front of plasma screens too much, so that doesn't necessarily make for good photography. So, so, and, and, but going back to this sort of looking at the image, I mean, I, I mean, I really do look at the image. All right. I'm yeah. looking at the photographer. Okay. Why did you take this? And then, and then giving them a crit where, you know, just being honest, say, look, this is okay, but it could be better. Right. All right. And this is not working because of this. And maybe your composition is wrong or maybe where you're standing is wrong. Right. A lot of times it's where we stand. And today's world where you can't see my hands right now, but as we hold our hands out, right, 
and put that camera out there looking at the screen, that doesn't make for great composition. I'm sorry. It looking doesn't. at the screen, you look right? through the viewfinder. Yeah. Mm. Oh, no, totally. 100%. I'm with you. <laughs> And I and I have and I have students now that are that are flipping going from the from all these digital cameras now, buying roller flexes, buying like uh, uh, four by five cameras, you know, getting old used thirty five millimeter cameras. They want to shoot film. There's yes. something about film that calms people down. It you slows know? down it the process. It it's a slower process. It does too. It's deliberate right. and slow. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I don't want to have to look at 150 images when I come home at night yeah. on a screen. You know, I'd rather wait for the contact sheet and see, and then, you know, it's a much easier way to deal with this stuff. So, you know, I mean, I do shoot digitally for work, but, you know, I, you know, for my work, it's usually film. When you're shooting a portrait, how many images would you take? Is it one? Is it two? Well, if I'm doing a portrait, I always, if, if the time allows, I like to ask for an hour. Right. At least a, at least an hour with a person. Yeah. Because, you know, you want to talk a little bit. You want to see what's going on a little bit. Then you want to see where you want to photograph somebody. You know, we're not talking about studio photography here. No. You know, we're talking about somebody out and about or in somebody's apartment or maybe it doesn't work or maybe you need lights or something else. But, you know, just trying to get a sense of, of a little time I could spend. And if I'm shooting two and a quarter, you know, if I'm shooting six by six film, I'm only going to shoot two or three rolls. That's it. If I don't have it in in two rolls, I don't have it. You're, you're not going to get I, it. I mean, I mean, because if you if we go back in time, you know, the, you know, everything used to be shot with glass plate, right? Yeah. So so you had one piece of glass that you coated, like like Sally Mann does, right? You yeah. coat you coat it up with your with your silver. You put it on the back. You got one shot. One shot. That's it. Mm. That's it. Now we got a million shots. Just because you have a million shots doesn't mean to make the picture better. Huh? Right? <laughs> so so sometimes less is more, right? And that is a discipline. It's almost like becoming a, a Buddhist, right? Like a Buddhist master, right? You have to like you have to believe in what you're doing, right? So, you know. Uh yeah. So that's that's it's about one or two roles. That's it. Okay, it's just back to that portrait session. So when you're there, are you going in with a preconceived idea of how you want to shoot this or are you allowing the environment to uh, dictate that? And what happens? How much are you uh, controlling the um, the narrative? Are you placing the person in a particular spot? Are you talking to them in a particular way? What does that look like? Yeah, yeah well, the, the conversation is the conversation first, but, you know, um, you want to make them feel comfortable. You want to gain trust. You know, obviously, a lot of times I might set that up before we have the fortress setting. I'd like mm. to meet somebody before I'm going to do that. So on a different and, day? Yeah, yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, uh, if, if the time allows. I mean, if you're doing like, like this reentry project I did, in Los yeah. Angeles, you know, all these women and these men, they were they were in this place. They were they were there. They were kind of in a lockdown situation. So I didn't have to really sort of look around. It was very little limited backgrounds that I could use. Yeah. Right. So brick wall is a brick wall. That's it. So it's really going to be at that point. What does the person look like? Do I want to be really close to that person? Meaning, do I want to use a magnifying filter to get closer to that person's face? Yep. yep. Or do I want to step back? Do I want to have it a full frame where I have a feet to the top of the head? Yep. Or do I want to do I want to have a three quarter? Now I might shoot variations of that, which right. I do a lot, right? Yeah. Right. 
But it's really more about the gaze, right? It's about the look. I, I, I tend to go close, and I tend to like to have that, I want to get the eyes, right? You're capturing all, all the, someone all the home, magic is, someone it home in the it, eyes. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, if it's if it's in a home, it's going to be a lot more different because then it might be, uh, you know, a 24 millimeter lens mm. where where you see those pictures in the living rooms because you want to capture the elements of the room, right? And um, but you could see it in some of the gang photos of some of the portraits we did with families, but not every portrait's going to turn out to be that way, right? Yep. So, but the one-on-ones, I'm talking about like more one-on-one where you have the person, you can direct the person a little bit, you know, Uh, but there it's really, I think it's really about the soul of the person that I'm trying to capture. Yeah. Exactly. So those portraits mm -hmm. and the videos that you you created from the the people Mm -hmm. um, in lockdown, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. they're Mm -hmm. very authentic. So how much time mm. are you spending with them? Because they're, they're, they're completely relaxed, these mm. people. There's okay. no sort of yeah. – they're not, they're not posing or speaking with right. a cert, in a certain way. They're, they're just so genuine right. and authentic. How, how, right. does, that, how well, does that come well, about? Well, it's, it's, the multimedias are, are done different – well, first of all, you had to, I had to meet the people. Yep. So that project went on for like, I don't know, months, yep. right? And so first I'm introduced to this facility and then I have to stand up. It's like a 12 step facility, right? It's like, yep. you know, you're standing in front of all these addicts and you have to sort of explain yourself and uh, what you're doing. Anybody interested, you know, please raise your hand, stand on one side. So we got model releases from the people that were interested, the people that were not, we didn't photograph them. Right. Yeah. So at that point, um, you know, now we're introduced. Now I take one at a time. Yeah. And that's basically how I handle it. So first, what did I do? I interviewed. No, I I did a quick interview, and because sometimes the portraits in the hallway, sometimes in their bedroom, wherever yeah. it might be, it might be in the back, and then just take a couple roles, get their names. I said I'm going to come back to you, and do an interview with you. Right. So the audio is completely separate. It's yes. a totally different day. There's no pictures being made. There's, you know, you I can't do both. I I never could figure out how. How photographers do multimedia at the same time. I, yeah. I can't do that. I can't because I think the photography suffers. I don't want the photography to suffer, you know, just because I'm getting some audio. So, um, and so they were relaxed because I was spending a lot of time there. Right. And so, um, and being honest and truthful. Yeah. You're being so, authentic. So they'll be yeah. authentic, I guess. You can only, yeah. you can only take yeah. a portrait to the, it's kind of like I don't know. Do you feel this that sometimes when you're taking a portrait of someone, you, there's a whole lot of you in that image? Oh, of course. Mm. Yeah, I think any any of the great portrait photographers would say that. You know, Avedon was like that. You know, it's just to name an example. You know, uh, Nan Golden was like that as well. You know, there's a lot of her inside of the portraits that she takes of the friends and people that she loves. You know, we all have what we want to sort of sort of bring out in in the photograph yeah yeah so um you know some of us just feel that we just want to let the person be and just let the person be but you know that's usually the way i start i start with the snapshot because yeah. everybody says what do you want me to do so they stand there and they smile right <laughs> and now now we got to break through that 
and that usually takes time, right? Yeah. And just try to tell people to be more serious, right? Yeah. Because if you look at painting, as I do, uh, from the Dutch school to the French school to the Spanish school, I mean, you look at those portraits, <laughs> people smiling, that's for sure. People took a portrait very seriously, yes. right? So, so that's the way I see it. Fantastic. I could talk to you for hours, Joseph, but we do have a limit on time. Just to finish, okay. um, mm -hmm. one bit of advice for uh, someone who might be listening to this and thinking, well, I want to do documentaries. I, I, I want to document life and I want to do this long game. What's one bit mm -hmm. of advice that you would give to someone who's starting out today? Look at their own life mm -hmm. and think about where you came from. And what. look, this is what I, I mean. It, this is... For me, this is very important. Mm. At NYU or any school, we can teach you a lot. The one thing we can't teach you in photography is what you care about. And that's the long game for you. Fantastic. That's fantastic advice. Joseph, thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely. Wow, what a great chat with Joseph Rodriguez. And of course, you can have a look at some of his images um, on in the show notes over at GinaMilitia.com. So they're absolutely fantastic. And I'll put links to all his uh, social media as well in the show notes so you can go and uh, check it out. But, yes, yeah, stunning, stunning work. Brilliant. Very inspiring. Brilliant. Yes. Very inspiring. All right, so what are you doing in the coming week, Gina? Oh, just work as normal, getting back out there, continuing on with my personal projects and making sure I'm, uh, you know, getting lots of uh, work done as well. But Val, mm. I've got a couple of uh, TV recommendations. I know this is a photography podcast, uh. but I do. <laughs> I've stumbled. So yeah. I have been living in the 70s of late okay. and, uh, you know, I think, uh, and I know there's a lot of listeners who were, you know, uh, had not necessarily grew up in the 70s but have memories like they're old enough to remember like their childhood perhaps in the 70s but yes. a couple of shows that I have absolutely loved one is called Made in Italy so I want you to imagine if um, Devil Wears Prada was set mm -hmm. at an Italian magazine in the 70s in Milan okay, okay. it for me and it's so it's all in Italian with subtitles I felt like I was going on a holiday. So it's set against the backdrop of what was going on politically in um, in Italy in the 1970s. So there was a lot of, um, uh, you know, uh, protests happening and strikes and things like that. But then there was also the, the, the history of the fashion that was going on. So you get to actually meet, they, they bring like, the photographer is Richard Avedon that's doing the shoot. It's not actually him, but an actor playing him. And the um, the the fashion designers are also brought in. So you get to see that sort of behind the scenes. And then they're all working in the, the magazine. And then the music, the, the cars, the vintage wet Vespers, the vintage clothes, the way the, the, the series is toned. Oh, happy Valerie to mm. just binge watch that so that's made in Italy in Australia I've been watching it on SBS I'm sure that if you look it up you can find um, where it's streaming is in the rest of the world is it actually filmed in the 70s or it's just set no, in the 70s no no it's filmed it's mod, It's filmed today but yeah, it's okay. set mm -hmm. you know so the wardrobe the styling mm. 
mm. everything about it. It is brilliant. And I'm yep, learning yep. new Italian swear words as well that I, oh, I didn't know that that meant that because the <laughs> subtitles are the same. So I'm learning. It's, uh, yeah. So fa- if, if you are a, a fashion lover, history lover, Italian, you're going to love this. The other one is, uh, is actually a cartoon mm. and it's called F is for Family. Also set in the 70s, and uh, it's not a children's cartoon, so it's an adult cartoon. And uh, Bill Burr is the voice of the father. And if you grew up in the 70s, you were going to recognize so many. So it's like The Simpsons, as in no one gets any older, it's always like the, the, another day, another. Um, exciting adventure for the family but it's just the basic things of like they get their first color tv or you know things that happen at school and the kids are sent off and got told not to come home until the street lights come on but all the re- references back to life in the 70s again right. fantastic You're getting very nostalgic very, yeah, I am. Very, very funny. I loved it. So they're, they're, they're the two things that I've been binging on. I know nothing to do with photography, but so, listeners, very inspiring. You came to here for photography and look, we just over-deliver. We over-deliver. We? we do, we do, we do. <laughs> All right. So uh, where do we find you online, Gina? You can find me at ginamilitia.com. That's G-I-N-A-M-I-L-I-C-I-A. I'm on all social media at Gina Militia. And if you want to take your photography to the next level, then check out the Gold Community. You can find that at ginamilitia.com and click on Join the Community. What about you, Val? You can find me at Valerie Koo on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Photographer. For more information, free resources, and Gina's regular newsletter on everything you need to know to become a successful photographer, visit ginamilitia.com.